oh, in a series of blunders where I just made every mistake you can possibly make. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I'm your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah Fisk. Today, we're going to be joined by Ashley Winstead. Ashley is the author of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, which has received positive reviews from the New York Times and Publishers Weekly, among others, and has been named one of the best debuts of the year by Crime Reads and Library Journal. She has a PhD in English and lives in Houston. So please welcome Ashley to the show. Hello. Hi, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy you came, you're coming on and sharing your story with everyone. We're going to talk about your journey to publication, but we're going to start by going to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? Yeah, I want have wanted to be a writer my entire life. So that was just always the goal. Um, as a young kid, I even remember talking ad nauseum uh, to all my family members about how I was going to be a writer when I grow up. Probably drove them nuts. Uh, distinctly remember a few like gentle proddings of, have you thought about being the medical field or like maybe <laughs> being a lawyer? You know, just a little of that. But no, it was always writing for me. I just love love reading, love, love writing. And so I always took it seriously. And I maybe took myself a little too seriously is something I will confess like right <laughs> off the bat, because I, I went to undergrad and studied English and art history and creative writing and, um, you know, thought I did well there. And then my senior year in college, I thought, well, what does one do when they want to be, you know, a serious writer? And in my head, in my mind at that point, what being a writer, the kind of writer I was going to be was a literary fiction writer. You know, mm. I was going to like toil away at that great American novel. I think I just soaked up a lot of pretension from, from <laughs> you know, the academic setting. And so I applied to MFA programs, like, you know, 13 of them, I think. And one after one, those rejections rolled in just across the board rejections from every single one. And I was suddenly stuck, not only with this pragmatic question of, oh no, what do I do with my life upon graduation, when it just suddenly took a turn that I didn't expect it to. And also, well, I guess, you know, I'm not as much of a writer as I thought I was since this most professional of feedback, you know, the, these MFA programs has told me no, you know, I don't stack up. So I did what the last thing you're supposed to do as a writer. And I just took the rejection at face value mm. and thought like, okay, that was it. That was the end of it. I'm, I'm very hurt. And I didn't write again for 10 years. So I spent a whole decade doing other things. I worked in entertainment. I worked in the music industry. I got my PhD. You know, I, I did things that I'm, I'm happy I did in retrospect were good life experiences you know, some of them less good, but just like interesting. And I'll tell stories about them later. But it took me writing my dissertation for my PhD to really even crack open that well of hurt that I'd buried that had to do with writing. Mm -hmm. And once I finished my dissertation, it was a book length manuscript, essentially. <laughs> and I taught myself through the process of writing that how to 
A, take lancing rejection and, and, and criticism from people who were my teachers, from journals that I was submitting pieces of it to. Just it was a gauntlet of rejection, which was very healthy for me because it, I grew tough skin and, you know, also taught me how to grind. I know I have mixed feelings about grinding now, but <laughs> at the time it was it was what I had to do to produce that. And so I thought, you know, Ashley, what if you had zero expectations? You started writing fiction again, simply in place of Netflix, like watching Netflix because you enjoy <laughs> it. You know, it'll be like the thing you do to unwind at night and you just apply that ability that you just taught yourself to actually sit down and put words on a page to this new thing. And that's how I did it. Honestly, you know, I was working a full-time job. Uh, so I'd crammed writing into nights and weekends. And I wrote over the course of about a year and a half, a much too long contemporary YA fantasy. I clocked in at 140K words. <laughs> and it was just, you know, it needed so much work, but I was so dang proud of myself for actually doing it. And so, of course, the process of editing, I got it down to like 100,000 words. And I really, at that point, started to open my heart up again to the idea of trying to put it out in the world and, and seeing. I think your first draft, your first first draft was three times longer than my first first draft. <laughs> That's amazing. Three times. Okay. Um, this is, you're seeing me in real time, how bad I am at math, <laughs> trying to divide the number. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you tell me more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author, that you wanted to, you know, see your book on bookshelves, see your name on a cover, that kind of thing? I, really young still, it, it was always a dream. You know, I'd pick up books really from my mom, my mom's shelves, because my mom was the big reader in our family. And she read a lot of Danielle Steele and, and a lot of books that really shaped me when I was young. And my father actually read a lot of Tom Clancy. I guess that was what he read. So those were my two that I would pick up from their bookshelves. And, you know, I'd kind of look at the covers and just think about both of them were authors who had so many books out. So that's kind of the vision I had of what it was to be mm. an author is like this incredibly prolific thing. And I would dream about having it say, you know, Ashley Winstead on, on the cover. And, and then a few times in throughout undergrad, you know, getting things published and just that, that you know, short things, poems and, and short stories and just that awe of like cracking something open and seeing your your name. And so just really started to feed the hunger at that point that I was, um, you know, I couldn't, couldn't stop just being hungry to, to see, well, by Ashley Winstead. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was through academia. So pretty much the entire time. And it was always just a dream, but never something I thought about a lot in reality. Hmm. I love your mom read the like quintessential mom books and your dad read like the quintessential dad books. That's so yes. perfect. <laughs> They've totally fit into those like stereotypes. And it's funny because I actually had a conversation. I write romance now too. Mm -hmm. And I had this revealing conversation with my mother <laughs> when I was reading her some of my latest book. And she was like, you know, I don't know if I've ever told you how much I love reading romance. And I was like, Mom, I knew that. Like, I read all of your Daniel Steele when you weren't looking. And she was like, oh, 
oh my gosh, I did Daniel Steele. <laughs> and I was like, mom, you definitely did. That was like, you owned like 30 books or something, the entire body <laughs> of work, essentially. But that was just something that was so, um, shaped me so much that she either didn't want to remember or just, you know, wasn't as, as impactful to her as to me. <laughs> So how did you learn more about the publishing industry, like how it works, how to query, how to go about it, everything like that? Oh, in a series of blunders where I just made every mistake you can possibly make. I looked at the wrong information. I struggled to find information about agents. I don't think I learned about query manager until, I don't know, a year after I started (laughs) researching into... So I just... I don't know where I was looking at manuscript wish lists and which isn't a bad resource, but it's just for, you know, for querying authors, there's, it's just overwhelming to try to parse so much information and look for the right fit. I also knew that my manuscripts needed work and my contemporary fantasy at the time, I actually didn't know it was a YA fantasy. Mm. I thought it was a new adult fantasy because the characters (laughs) were college age. And I actually didn't know that new adult was a term. I just thought my characters were this age. They were in their early 20s. And I would just query write, uh, agents who were interested in fantasy. So I had to learn so much like that it was new adult in the first place, that new adult wasn't the best idea, <laughs> that any agent I queried who even was a little bit interested would tell me to age it up or age it down. Mm-hmm. So it was just It was a very long process. And so I even did things where I paid money to have people look at my, read my manuscript. You know, I saved up money and paid money for people to read my manuscript and and agents to read my manuscript and give me feedback. And, you know, I think there are a lot of very legitimate places that offer that clearly, but I don't know that I chose the most legitimate Mm -hmm. ones. And so I got very conflicting information. It was just a mess when I started looking at at agents. And so, yeah, my querying journey was very long. (laughs) I was just such a clueless baby. So then what happened? Can you break down your journey for us from there to signing your first book contract? Yes. So I was lucky enough to rejoin Twitter because I was on Twitter back in the early days, like 2009, I was like young person working at Warner Brothers and they were like, there's this social media thing. (laughs) Why don't you handle it? You know, you can be here. And so I I managed a lot of Twitter accounts, got very burnt out, took eh, seven years off or something like that and jumped back into Twitter right when I started seeing people talk about this thing called Pitch Wars, which I know you're very familiar about. And I'm sure all your listeners are too, so I won't a break pitch wars down like I usually do for people. But I started seeing pitch wars be talked about. And the thing that really hooked me was that it seemed to be like a really accessible and friendly program to people who, like me, had no clue what they were doing and were just not well connected, knew no one in the industry. It really felt like even if you didn't, you still had a fair shot. And also the way that people talked about it as being for people who weren't ready for querying, who knew that there was something wrong with their manuscript, but they just couldn't figure out what. 
So I got so obsessed with pitch wars <laughs> and just like really, really put a lot into cutting and, sh and sharpening my manuscript, especially those first pages. And I applied to pitch wars and I got one single mentor request, mentor team request, just one, but it was the best moment of my life. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that moment of getting that email for a full request from my what would turn out to be my pitch wars mentors, I was more elated than any other milestone I've reached in my journey, just because that was the very first time someone looked at my work and said like, yeah, we see something here. So shout out to Katie Beers and Lindsay Friedman for being <laughs> just like huge for me. I, with one mentor request, I ended up getting selected for pitch wars class of 2018. I gutted my book with my mentors, just did, changed it so much. They were brilliant geniuses and I am so grateful to them. They're like, have you heard about pacing? It's when you, <laughs> it's when you, you know, actually get your readers to want to um, follow your book along. So they taught me a lot and I rewrote the whole thing. I was so excited about the agent showcase and as one does in Pitch Wars, became very close with a lot all the other mentees in my class. And so in the agent showcase, I had really great hopes. I thought I was so close. I honestly felt like Pitch Wars was the golden ticket. And then Sarah, I crashed and burned so hard in the showcase. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> I was so devastated. And I actually like every dramatic stereotype every like tv stereotype of someone who is just very upset you know like Would you eat ice cream out of the container <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> while my mascara ran down my face oh, no. <laughs> and i walked around with a bottle of red wine in the dark <laughs> <laughs> just like i don't know i was just so sad i love that you you said you thought it was a golden ticket because that's actually the phrase that Kelly uses like privately in our chats is she's like, people think it's a golden ticket and it's not. That is exactly right. It's interesting and it's a hard thing to learn and you, you almost don't want to hear it when you're in, you know, you're on the other side and mm -hmm. because it's so exciting to think that if you get tapped by pitch wars, that it's a smooth sailing from then on. But of course that's not true. And yeah, I learned the hard way. It's one thing to be querying, just it's like, you know, alone in your house and, you know, your parents and, and your family, whoever you're close to, or, you know, your spouse knows what you're doing, but that's it. And to go to go through pitch wars, it kind of makes everything a little more public. Mm -hmm. And so there's that public element of feeling like even though this is absolutely not true and no one in the writing community could pick me up out of a lineup. You know what I mean? Like you just feel like people are aware of how you failed and you feel like people are maybe talking about you or I don't know. It's just all the fear gets into your head and it just feels like a really public flop, at least to me. And, and the people I've commiserated with have expressed similar things. So there I was feeling very sorry for myself and I, really had this like long phone conversation with a friend who's a pitch wars mentee who was just like, Ashley, keep, just keep writing. That's literally the only thing you can do. Take all of what you're feeling. And if you can try to make art out of it. And no one has ever said words to me that 
have sent, you know, shaped me so profoundly because that is now my approach to all of life. It's just take it, try to make art out of it. In my dreams, I hold a knife was actually born when I was at my lowest post agent showcase and felt like an absolute failure. And it is a book about feeling, not just feeling like, but being an absolute failure. I was very determined to write a book that was not triumphant about a character who was like really doing better than she thought and everything's okay in the end. I was like, no, I want to write about someone who literally cannot win, who like gets knocked down over and over again and who the world keeps telling is just not going to make it because maybe she just doesn't deserve to make it. <laughs> um, so anyway, I started writing that book without really knowing what my future was going to look like. And so I think two months later, after the agent showcase, and I was writing and plotting and all sorts of stuff, I got an email out of the blue from one of the pitch wars requesting <laughs> agents, like one of my tiny number of agents who actually requested in the showcase, Melissa Edwards, saint, angel, wonderful human, <laughs> um, sent me an email and said, I stayed on a treadmill longer to finish your book. Mm. And she's like, so if that says anything, you know, about how much I liked it and I'd like to have a call with you. And I just could not believe it. I was actually driving in Houston traffic, oh, no. which for anyone who's aware of Houston, like knows Houston traffic, it, uh, it's a lot of parts standstill. So I was actually like in an exit lane that was a mile long, just waiting my turn when I casually looked at my email and threw my phone to the other side <laughs> of the car because I couldn't believe what I was looking at and then had to like use my leg to try to, you know, grab it back so I could actually check that, you know, this was, this email actually said what I thought it said. So um, she made an offer and I swear that entire phone call, I... I'm so glad people don't record them and play them back to you because <laughs> I probably sounded like such a weirdo. I could, I could just not believe that I was on the phone with her and I was very scared too, very terrified to talk to her that if I said the wrong thing, she'd be like, you know what? Um, I changed my mind. So um, I ended up getting a few agent offers. So I went from <laughs> like not having any hope to all of a sudden having a few different agent possibilities. And it's kind of funny. So for anyone who's listening, who's in the querying phase, people say, and this was true in my experience, that like once you get one offer, all of a sudden you become a priority in people's inboxes, which just makes logical sense, right? There's a time limit on, on that, um, on responding to people with offers, usually two weeks. And so I started getting very rapid fire yeses on all of my outstanding queries. And so I got a ton of full requests, which was extremely, um, it really built my ego up. Like all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, everyone wants to read this book. And then quickly that's followed by the rapid no's from everyone <laughs> who, who like, you know, took a shot, but nah. So um, just steal yourself for that, queriers. And so I signed with Melissa Edwards because she was far and away, you know, I just really felt my heart was with her and she had a wonderful vision for my work. And when I pitched her in my dreams, I hold a knife, which did not have that title at the time. She was super into it. And so um, I 
she then it, a month later gave me the most massive edit letter on my contemporary <laughs> YA fantasy that anyone has ever received. It was like pitch wars all over again. And I looked at that edit letter and I was like, well, this is right. I don't disagree with anything she said, but I really don't want to revise this effing book <laughs> after I just did it. And so I poured all of my heart and soul into writing in my dreams out of pure procrastination hmm. from the thing that I was supposed to be doing, <laughs> like the thing that she had signed me for. And I finished it so quickly because the power of procrastination, I guess, um, compelled me and sent it to some betas, obviously, but sent it to Melissa actually pretty quickly after finishing. She gave me three notes, I think, mm. on In My Dreams compared to 13 pages of notes on my previous. And I revised and she was like, okay, we're ready to go on sub. Um, so the... The, I cannot, the experience I had of spending, frankly, decades, but, you know, once I really tried again, years, and just, and then to have this part go so rapidly was very surreal, um, a very surreal experience. And we sent the book out and this is, is not widely known. And I'm going to tread really carefully just because I know you have to tread carefully on, on when you're talking about sub stuff, but my we actually subbed my book very shortly after a book that was very similar to mine had been subbed and you know went to auction and did great things and so my agent actually came back to me and she was like ashley a lot of editors said they can't even read your book because they just went to bat for a book, a different book that is, that has shares a lot of similarities with yours. Mm. And I was, I did not even know that was a thing that could happen to you, you know? And that's one of those things where you have absolutely no control over when you sub your book versus someone else or mm -hmm. that there's another person in the world writing, you know, a book with a really similar plot to yours and it was just bad luck of the draw. I mean, not to say that, you know, whatever, any of those eight editors would have liked my book and made an offer on it anyway, but just the fact that a fair number of people actually said, you know, I know I can't sell my team, like do all the back background selling that I need to do on a book since we just did this for a similar title. So cue more ice cream eating <laughs> and you know um and i was just like okay well god this publishing industry they really really just wants to put to put you through every ringer but i i like we my agent told me to hang in there and we i would say six weeks after that like all that initial just onslaught of no's from from publishers we had interest and offer from a publisher and I got the call while I was at a criminal justice reform conference in New Jersey um, because my, my, I worked in uh, social justice and policy reform as my day job. And so I was, you know, in the middle of this conference hearing amazing speakers speak 
um, about bail reform in New Jersey and I get like all caps text from my agent <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to sneak on out of this <laughs> conference. And so I wandered around the, the building in New Jersey and heard the news that we had an offer and it was very exciting. We ended up getting a few more offers and went to auction and then ended up selling the book to Sourcebooks. And I am just so grateful that it all happened the way that it did. Two things about your Pitch Wars experience. It's funny because you're in 2018 and 2018 was the first year that we had no entries with zero uh, requests. It was quite common to have zero requests before then. And so you're talking about your few requests and you crash and burn, but you got a few requests. And the year that Ellie Blake was my mentee, who she went on to become New York Times bestselling author, we had the most requests in the entire showcase with seven, I believe, requests. Yeah. Oh so goodness. it's funny. Okay, to hear. Yes, that is. <laughs> yeah. Like, first of all, perspective, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that just makes all the difference. And I'm so stunned uh, because I, I think I remember the like incredibly talented writer who got the most in 2018 was like 52. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ancient requests. So to have that grow, I guess, <laughs> or, or something so quickly. Yeah. Wow. And then the other thing was uh, your experience of writing that book after Pitch Wars is not terribly uncommon. A lot of writers, whether it's Pitch Wars or just working closely with an editor, that's, that second book or the book afterwards is comes to them a lot easier because they've learned so much about craft. And so I think that's a really interesting thing that people don't talk about when it comes to Pitch Wars and other mentoring organizations is sometimes you get in with a book and you end up finding success, but not with that book because you just learned so much working with someone um, that the the next book is, you know, better and easier to write. That is so true. And I honestly feel like that's how I'm going to talk about the beauty of Pitch Wars to people from now on is like, you are going to learn so much and you are going to get something incredible and gorgeous out of it. That may not mean that the book you're working on is necessarily the one that goes on. But yeah, that 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 really doesn't surprise me to hear because it's like everything my mentors taught me clicked, but it had to click in this new book. The episode I did with Emily Winstrom, she talks something about that experience where um, going from like trying to fix the same book that she's been working on for years and years and years and finally realizing maybe I can't fix this, but I can write a new one. That was just like a really interesting conversation. So that is actually my approach now. That's just what I do. I'm like, if something is too, too difficult, I'm like, you know what? Why don't I just start from scratch? And yeah, yeah. I ended up shelving my Pitch Wars book. Yeah. For me, it's always easier to start from scratch. All right. Can you read your successful query letter for us? Oh, yes. Dear Miss Edwards, thank you for requesting The Discontents, my 2018 Pitch Wars YA contemporary fantasy. 16-year-old Brett Williams balances on a knife edge between two lives. For the trust fund crowd at her fancy boarding school, she's Brett Williams, junior class queen. For the teachers and scholarship board, she's Brett Williams, 
full ride, A plus student. But when she slips out early from a party to study and her bus is struck, she becomes something else entirely. Brett Williams, girl about to die. Like a black and white movie turning technicolor, her senses awaken, allowing her to touch the quantum connections between objects. Brett stuns herself by unleashing extraordinary power that halts the careening bus and saves the students inside. Desperate to understand her power and who or what she is, Brett strikes a deal with the students from the crash, a breakfast club of misfits that includes Nick Hunt, her beautiful, arrogant enemy. From their lair in the library, they launch an investigation that leads them through corporate break-ins, magic homecoming parties, illicit genetics labs, social club wars, and straight into mortal danger. Because Brett's show of power did more than make the girl in the mirror a stranger. It roused someone in the shadows. Someone who's been tracking Brett, leaving eerie clues behind. The witness who ends up dead, the stranger who flees her on the street, the masked men who attack on Halloween. When she finally comes face to face with the tracker and people she fears most, everything Brett used to believe turns on its head. They offer everything she's always wanted. Family, identity, and oh God, the power. But taking it means sacrificing the life she built and everyone she loves. The Discontents is a dual POV novel for fans of V. Schwab, Maggie Steifotter, and Lainey Taylor, complete at 93,000 words. It's a standalone book with series potential. Like Brett, I'm a former scholarship student, although I went a little overboard by spending six years getting my PhD in English. I work on social and economic justice issues by day, and these themes inform my writing, as does my obsession with slow burn enemies to lovers romance. As per your request, I've attached the full book as a Word document. Thank you for your time and consideration. Best, Ashley Winstead. Oh, cringe. (laughs) (laughs) How has your experience been since signing your contract, especially were there any surprises along the way? Once again, the theme is that I know nothing Jon Snow or, (laughs) or just like perpetual baby or something. I don't know. I hate to like It's probably very dismissive. I should unpack why I keep referring to myself like that. But I just, yeah, everything has been a learning experience. So I didn't know how formal to be with with like Mm -hmm. some small things, like the fact that I would start all of my letters, emails, like people's address, dear Mrs. Oh, goodness. Or dear, (laughs) you know, just total noob. And from that, just to, I have had to learn once again, through a series of blunders, what it's like to edit a book with an editor and a publisher and work on promotion and, and marketing of that book. And then, you know, the, the sometimes traumatic process of having it out in the world, which feels very vulnerable. Like every new thing was such a, was a thing that I had so much anxiety about and thought was going to be such a with every single thing is like what I thought was really important and having now gone through the process of getting my debut out I mean it was like I thought if I wasn't on a most on all the most anticipated Mm -hmm. lists for example that my book was going to be a flop I thought that because my pub date got moved that that meant something bad about my book Mm. I worried about the fact that it took maybe a few hours for people to get back to me. You know, it's just like all the things that are, 
I again cringe now and I'm just like that is par for the course and actually you were doing great old Ashley you're doing fine <laughs> I didn't realize two specific things that I didn't know before going in were really how much how little um, control authors have over their titles and their covers that was very revelatory to me how little control you have over your marketing which I know is a fraught subject, but I love to talk about <laughs> fraught subjects and like just, you know, talk about things you're not supposed to talk about. But I didn't know how to ascertain how much marketing support I was going to get. And so I asked very blunt questions about things like that that you're probably not supposed to ask. And luckily, I directed most of those to my agent. So she caught them before they could then go on to my editor. <laughs> so I, that's what all a piece of advice for everyone else who's new. Direct most things to your agent first, because she can definitely, she or he, they can definitely catch things and keep you from making a fool of yourself. I will also say that I didn't realize that what's most important in your book's life was really like the month that it's out. So I got really concerned and anxious about promotion of my book and whether it was getting out to enough people and whether it was being covered enough or, you know, again, as much as I hoped. And really, I was spending a lot of calories wasted on things that would have been, I don't know, mental energy that would have been better put to use somewhere else. And everything turned out okay. <laughs> so I guess basically what I'm trying to say is like a gentle virtual hug to anyone who's listening. Every step from querying to getting an offer on your book, which is amazing to then going through the editing and promotion process feels so absolutely terrifying. And like, you're the anomaly and <laughs> that you are the like the one for some reason who things aren't working out for or everyone's doing better than you. And that is just like 99.9%. .9 I'm certain that that's not the case for most people. <laughs> so yeah, it is nice to know you're not alone, though, when you finally get the courage to vent about these things to other other authors who are in the same boat, and everyone feels the same way. Mm -hmm. It is time for our quick round. I call it author DNA, just uh, classifications that we like to put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Absolute plotter. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Overwriter. <laughs> I would have guessed that. <laughs> do you tend to write better in the morning or at night? Night. When you start with a new story, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Characters. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Whenever you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Absolute total silence. <laughs> When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Get it right, sadly. <laughs> and what tools or software do you use to draft? Just Word. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Complete chronological order. And final quick round question, are you an extrovert or an introvert? An introvert. All right. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We already read your query. And now we're going to talk about the second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them or, you know, how did that shake out? Yes. I think that I basically I came in and told you 
all my worries through yeah. the process. I really led with my worries. I'm sorry about that, Sarah. Yeah, I just okay. loaded on that. It's in the title of the show. It's okay. <laughs> so yeah, as as you have probably heard, I worried about everything that you can possibly worry about. Plus, I invented things to worry about. <laughs> I am a, a big chronic overworrier. But at 35 years old, um, I have finally come to love and appreciate that about myself and accept that about myself that I am just going to worry about things. Yeah, specific worries include everything from having my book be published and absolutely not a single soul read it Mm. or even know that it existed. I would say that was my chief number one worry. I actually had nightmares about you know, people hating my book and just tearing it apart. And, but nothing was more terrifying than my daydreams about the book just like puffing into air and just floating away (laughs) and just not existing anymore. And so I will say that I probably owe my agent, publicity team and editor (laughs) Um, of my debut book, lots of chocolates or whatever their favorite comfort um, things are because I sent them so many frantic emails. You know, like, is it bad that this happened? Are we good? Are are you going to plan to do this, this and this? And I am a person who enjoys control and a control enthusiast, which is, I think, usually what's coupled with being an over-worrier. And so I tried to just like handle it all myself. Mm. I was like, well, if I'm not getting a lot of feedback or, or responses from folks who, to be clear, were busy professionals dealing with a lot of people other than me, then I'm just going to figure these things out on my own or just like poke people until <laughs> so they know that I'm thinking about this. So yeah, I would say everything was a worry for me. All right. <laughs> And now we're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process is different or interesting or unique? I don't know how unique or interesting this is, but I am just someone who has to meticulously plot my books. Like we're talking 45 to 60 page outlines, chapter by chapter, scene by scene, before I feel comfortable drafting and I like to color code all of my different plot lines so I can visual and paste them up on walls so I can visualize how they're all coming together. That is really helpful to me. And I do, I'm obsessed with Lisa Cron and Story Genius. And so I just do the Story Genius deep dives for every single book I have. I'm just a creature of routine hmm. for every book. I have gone through the Story Genius method done my character mapping, done my plotting, started drafting in the exact same way. That actually sounds really boring. I'm sorry that I shared all that with you, but just like, yes, uh, basically like a little writing robot. (laughs) Nice. When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? Writing friends who told me that one rejection or, you know, one period of rejection was actually a very low (laughs) period or low number of rejections to uh, be going through. And so to buck up and throw myself back into the game so that I could experience more rejection. um, And that was just like part and parcel of the whole beautiful thing. 
So writing friends and then again, just taking all the terrible feelings that I was experiencing and trying to reach out to talk, have a conversation with other people about it through fiction. Mm. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you made along the way that you'd like to share with listeners so maybe they don't make the same ones? Uh, this, at first, I was embarrassed to I was embarrassed to be who I was as a writer and an artist. And what I mean by that is I spent, you know, four years in undergrad and then six years in grad school. So I spent a lot of a huge chunk of my life, like a third of my life in academia, particularly in grad school. And I think I just swallowed hook, line and sinker the idea that, you know, good fiction was literary fiction was highbrow fiction. I disdain, you know, hate the word highbrow, but here I am using it. And I think that I tried for years to write short stories and books that were like the literary fiction writers that I was reading. Mm -hmm. Because when I thought about writing about things I was actually interested in, like sorority girls and, you know, like female friendships and love, romantic love, God forbid, and, you know, high drama, theatrics, I'll, I'll be honest, I couldn't imagine telling my dissertation advisor that I was writing a book like that. Mm. Because I just swallowed a lot of weird snobbery around what was good writing and what was not good writing. And so it took me so much longer than it should have or could have to write things that I actually loved and connected with. And even when I started doing that and started writing books centering women I was interested in being in their heads or, you know, and plots that I was interested in, I still felt really like ashamed or worried that there was something about my interests or my voice that just wasn't professional enough or I don't know. I, I Clearly, shame is coming across as a big theme. Yeah. Um, I, I hear it. Um, <laughs> so. But I just would strongly urge other writers to let go of any sort of pressure they feel to write like someone else and to just disregard anyone who tells you that something is good and, some, and other things are not. You know, mm-hmm. like if something brings someone pleasure and they and it's something that people enjoy that is good and i like die on that hill occupy and own your unique angle and your unique voice because i promise there's there are other people out there who are going to be interested too and there will be an audience for you yeah can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication take a chill pill <laughs> <laughs> i guess That's a good one <laughs> yeah Nothing is as bad as it feels in the moment. But saying that, you are allowed to feel as crappy as you like, let yourself feel. I'm not here to Mm -hmm. feeling shame anyone because I strongly believe in like letting yourself just embrace that darkness. That has, that is like, there's no choice for me. I have to do it. Like, I can't even decide not to because that's, you know, but know that that thing that feels like such a massive hurdle now such a massive big deal, such a massive rejection or loss 
it will fade. And as much as you can get perspective on it as fast as you can, the better off you'll be. Because then you'll just be ready to like faster to get in there and kick more butt writing, which is the only thing you have control over. Yeah. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? And I know you've mentioned several of them as you've discussed your journey. Yeah, I love this portion because there's nothing I love more than telling people that I love them. (laughs) Maria Dong, who is one of my Pitch Wars uh, 2018 co-mentees, is the person who basically picked me up off the floor from her home, you know, mile, <laughs> thousands of miles away via phone calls um, when I was most at my lowest. And so um, I probably wouldn't have kept writing in my dreams if not for her. So huge shout out to her. And I will just say like, I have a really small CP group, but they're the best CP group. Um, Lissa Smith, who's a current Pitch Wars um, mentor this year um, and just announced her beautiful YA fantasy series is going to be published by Harper Teen, has been in the trenches with me since 2018. And she's just a gem and a wonderful person. My grad school friends honestly became friends for life. And especially Kate Boswell, who is just the person I write everything for. It's like me and Kate, when I sit down at my laptop, I'm having a conversation with, with those two people. Ashley, before you go, could you tell us about your upcoming book, Fool Me Once? Yes. Um, so this is my Fool Me Once is coming out April 5th, 2022. And it is my romance slash women's fiction debut. It is a second chance enemies to lovers uh, story which as you heard in my query letter, I love a good enemies to lovers uh, story. So it follows Lee Stone, who is a total badass at her job um, as a communications director at an all-female electric vehicle company um, in Austin, Texas. So I said it here in Texas. Her dream of dreams is to pass a clean energy bill in Texas of all places. <laughs> so this is a cathartic politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is also a fantasy then. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, forget uh, women's fiction. This is contemporary fantasy. I actually drew on my own experiences in the policy world to write this. But it, essentially, she is finally given the opportunity to push this bill forward, which is just her heart and her soul, except she is tasked with working with the governor of Texas's new policy director, whose name is Ben Latterman, and he has been hired out of California. And he is also Lee's ex-boyfriend from five years ago, the man she, whose life she exploded and ruined in an epic breakup and who essentially fled the state because of their breakup. And now they can't stand to be in the same room together and they have to work together over months to achieve this huge professional goal. Shenanigans ensue. (laughs) Awesome. Sounds great. Thank you. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story today. Thank you so much for having me. I just am so honored to have been invited. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Ashley's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.